0: You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. Go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we're going to read through verse 37 in just a moment. Y'all may have heard about the pastor who had a couple in his church invite him over for dinner. And he went over and he had a meal, had a good fellowship with, the, with this couple. And uh, he, he left. And after he left, the wife looked at her husband and she said, babe, I'm almost positive that preacher just stole our spoon. She said, no, he said, no way, babe. He, he did not steal it. Did you check the table? I checked the table. He never even went in the kitchen. You know, I'm telling you, he, he stole our silver spoon. Well, she saw him at church for over a year, and she was just stewing about it, but she couldn't ever bring herself to say anything to the preacher about it. So finally, they invited him back over after more than a year. And they were sitting at the dinner table, and she just couldn't contain herself any longer. She, She just yelled out at the pastor. She said, did you steal our spoon last year? Well, he washed down the food that was in his mouth, took a drink of water, set his glass down, and he goes... Ma'am, regretfully, I have to tell you, I did not steal your spoon, but I did put it inside your Bible. Uh, our nation busted, right? Our nation and even our churches uh, are experiencing the spiritual effects of biblical illiteracy. And more uh, than that, those who do know Scripture often miss the correct translation and interpretation, they manipulate the Bible to say what suits them and their wishes. But if we'll interpret the Word of God properly and honestly, the whole counsel of God, as Acts 20, verse 27 says, then those who are humble in spirit and enabled by the Holy Spirit to hear, repent, and believe in the name of Jesus and His Word, then they will understand what the Word of God means. Now, we should still examine the scriptures daily to see if these things are so as the Bereans did over in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. But we must rightfully interpret scripture to know our God. Because if our interpretation is wrong, then our worship is wrong, right? Bad translations can be costly. I saw a funny illustration of this years ago before I went overseas and I want to show you this video of Mineshaft Tour. Das hier ist das wichtigste Gerät des Krustenbecher. Das Gerät, das Gerät. überlebensradar. This is the German coast guard. We are thinking, we're thinking. What are you thinking about? <laughs> uh translation. Is important, don't you think? And interpretation, they matter. And the sound teachers and preachers and disciple makers of the body of Christ, the church, must seek to change this. Uh, But even when we do this, when we do understand the Bible, we we often still have people that interpret it for selfish uh, reasons only. And that's exactly what happens in our passage today. So I want us to stand in honor of God's word and read Luke 10, verse 25. And just see what the Lord is thinking about, all right? And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? That's our question today. How do you read it? Really, that means, what does the Bible say? Verse 27, And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and parted, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Those were for medicinal purposes in that day. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, He took out two denarii, that's several days wages, and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I wanna ask Garrett Leaf to come and ask God's blessings on our message today. And may God bless the reading of his word. Garrett. All right, let's pray. Dear God, just thank you for this day. Thank you for everything you've given us. Thank you for just letting us all make it here this morning. And just um, please just let us be able to apply what went has to say to our lives. And just let us glorify you in everything we do. And just now pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Gary. Y'all be seated. Well, I want to jump right into the uh, preaching and teaching 101 this morning. There's some basic steps to digesting a biblical text. These aren't exhaustive, but there's at least three good, solid, simple questions to ask the text. And the first is, what's the context? Well, first you got Luke. He was writing to most excellent Theophilus, if you go back to Luke 1. And Theophilus was someone who would have been publicly known, a Roman dignitary, or at the very least, a, a very wealthy man in in high social standings in that community. And though Luke was writing to him, it's obvious that Luke knew others would be reading this. And Luke, you remember Luke's the physician, he's very detailed. So Luke, the book of Luke and Acts is a very detailed account of all these things. Also, a common thread throughout this letter that really applies to this passage, uh, this Gospel account was Christ's compassion for the outcast of Israel. And that may have been because he was speaking, you know, to mostly a Gentile audience, but Luke 4.31 says, and he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching for his word... Possessed authority. And that's really the key to this Good Samaritan story this morning the authority of God's word. So Jesus' words already were being recognized as authoritative, but then in Luke 9, verse 51, leading up to our text today, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Nothing was going to distract him from the cross. And we mentioned this a while back. Uh, So he's on his way to eventually be crucified. But he immediately gets rejected in Samaria uh, for at least two reasons, right? For starters, Luke 9.53 says, the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. They had an angst With Jewish people, Samaritans and Jews didn't go well together. Remember, they thought that uh, they had their own centers of worship. They didn't think people ought to worship. Samaritans should worship in Jerusalem. Remember the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan in John 4, verse 20. She said to Jesus, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Right, Actually, he didn't say they ought to worship there. But anyway, so then there's a second reason, not just because of the angst between Samaritans and Jews, but also because the cost of following Jesus was high. And we already mentioned this, foxes, Jesus had said foxes and, and birds have a place to live, but I don't. And I'm not going to wait around for you to let your, your uh, father die so you can inherit his money and buy us a home, all right? So he t- he's testing his disciples, Leading up to chapter 10, what happens in chapter 10 at the beginning? He sends out the 70 uh, in the first half of the chapter. And when they come back, they're pumped. Verse 17, they return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus replies in verse 20, Nevertheless, you know, you're right you know, but do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. And that's another key part of uh, this passage. Once again, Jesus is establishing this pattern in all of His Q&A sessions. They, They begin with a conversation and then a demonstration, right? So, that's the context. Conversation, rejoice that your names are written in the book of life, and now a demonstration. Jesus is on His way to the cross, And in route, he encounters the lawyer, and he shares the parable of the Good Samaritan. So first, we ask, what's the context? But second, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of the text? Now, I mean no disrespect to Chinese uh, or cheerleaders. Y'all just waiting to hear what I'm about to say, aren't you? My mentor, Jeff Ginn, uh, Jeff was in the '70s, '80s. He was he was in high school over in Arkansas. Uh, Go Hogs! And, uh, and he he uh, was had had a Chinese foreign exchange student come live with it. And he took him to a basketball game or something. Was kind of telling him the ins and outs of the game. And the then I guess during a timeout or something, all these cheerleaders ran out onto the court. And the Chinese kid looked over at Jeff and said, uh, what's the purpose of the cheerleaders, y'all? What's the purpose of the cheerleaders? Obviously, he wasn't very old yet. All right. And so we need to ask, what's the purpose of this text? And what's the purpose in this Bible? And it's, it's easy, and I believe for years it's been translated this way, it's easy to get caught up in this as just a, a, a story of compassion. Matter of fact, if you look up in all of your Bibles, look in the heading of your Bible right now if you've got one, even your digital ones, it says at the heading, it either says the parable of the Good Samaritan, 99% of you have this in your Bible, or it says the Good Samaritan. Matter of fact, I checked 30 versions of the Bible and all 30, uh, I, there were at least 30 of all the ones I looked at that showed this to be the heading, Right? And you're not going to find it when, we're, when your kids are coloring pictures of the Good Samaritan story, they're usually not coloring the picture of the lawyer who asked the question in the first place. They're not coloring pictures of Jesus, who's the one who's telling the story. And they're not quoting Deuteronomy and Leviticus, which we're going to look at in a minute, which is what the lawyer's quoting to Jesus. They don't talk about that. They only focus on this one a uh, victim, this robber-abused victim, being skirted by the most religious of the society, only to be ultimately helped by one lone Samaritan. What a hero! I heard a comedian uh, say uh, he was talking about Captain Sullenberger. Remember, Captain Sullenberger is the uh, the pilot who, uh, in January fifteenth, we know him as Captain Sully. Tom Hanks made a movie about it. Uh, but in two thousand nine, January fifteenth, he was piloting the U.S. Airways flight that taking off from LaGuardia and I think they hit some geese or something and and he had to crash land in the Hudson and nobody was hurt and he was like a hero and the comedian said you know heroes if they're asked do you think you're a hero they have to say no. Captain Sully do you think you're a hero for what you did saving all those hundred and something people's lives do you think you're a hero? No. He's a hero who don't know he's a hero. What a hero. And that's kind of how we think of the Good Samaritan. What a hero. The least likely guy to love. These priests are walking around this guy. He's incredible. But is that the purpose of the story? To praise a Samaritan hero. Now don't get me wrong. It is a beautiful story. It really is. I'm not wanting to take away from that. But this parable is actually an interpretation of the greatest commandments in the Bible. That's what the parable is. Back then you had, the Jews had three different groups. They had uh, the Sadducees, they had the Essenes, and they had the Pharisees. I don't have time to tell you about the Sadducees and Essenes, but the Pharisees were divided into three schools of thought. All right, mostly all of these were focused on running the temple and the traditions of the day. So there was the Shammai school, that was more conservative. There was the Hillel school, that was more liberal. Then you had Gamaliel who was the son or grandson of Hillel. And you remember his name because he was the one who discipled Paul. It's mentioned in Acts 22 verse three. So the Gamaliel school was focused more on wisdom and the Jewish calendar. So these three pharisaical schools helped shape religious traditions because they had influence on the local scribes who preached their own biblical interpretations in the synagogues, which were the Jewish news networks of the day. So it was these lawyers who were influencing those spiritual news networks. All right? I just wish things were familiar today. Jesus even said in Matthew 23 verses 1 and 2, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They interpret the practical applications of the Bible. And I share all that to say this lawyer who stood up in Luke 10.25 to put Jesus to the test was not the kind of lawyer that you're thinking of. All right, This guy was an ancient Jewish attorney, Basically, a scripture lawyer specializing in interpreting the Old Testament law, the Bible, and applying those teachings of the Bible and the established rabbis of his day. So this guy's a scholar, he's a theologian, and he comes to Jesus with the most important question in all the world, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And church, this is why this passage is so unbelievable. Jesus countered with a basic question. Listen, if you've got a question in your life, this is the question that should follow your question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? What does the Bible say? If you come to a moment in your life, a crossroads in your life, well, preacher, what's that got to do with what job I pick everything? There are principles in the Bible that apply to your your work. What about my spouse, the person I'll marry? Principles in the Bible apply to that. Everything. There are answers in the Bible for our questions. And we just don't ask, what does the Bible say? And what does this expert in the law say to Jesus? He quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and Leviticus 19, verse 18. Deuteronomy 6, and of course we have them here. Uh, Luke ten, twenty-six. you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself right? Now church, here's why it's unbelievable. Jesus was asked the same question in Matthew 22 that he is asking this lawyer. A lawyer asked him that question in Matthew 22 verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, this is a different story, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Get this. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the lawyer in Luke 10 gives the exact same answer, quotes the exact same scriptures that Jesus quoted. When he was asked that question, A plus bonus points for answering exactly like Jesus, right? That's why Jesus said in verse 28, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and you'll live. But the lawyer wasn't looking for justification from God. He was looking for a personal justification, right? An interpretation that fit his own self-governing lifestyle. And we see this all over the world today. We have denominations, we have churches falling apart because they, they justify what suits them. So he, he counters, right? He's looking for another out. Desiring to justify himself, he says, okay then, well, who's my neighbor? What the lawyer's really asking is, why don't you just go ahead and answer the question so I can trap you and put this to rest? Or maybe as, a, as a, a preacher himself in the synagogues, maybe he's saying, give me a smooth, maybe he's got some tricks up his sleeve, this, this guy, this rabbi, maybe he can give me a smooth interpretation of the text and uh, I can narrow down the rules that I have to obey and take it back and preach it to my people. Uh, when, what we get instead though is a divine interpretation by Jesus of a book he wrote in the first place, all right? This brilliant scripture lawyer wanted to s- something uh, more from the text, something humanly attainable. If we can reduce down all our Christian life to these few set of rules, go to church, read my devotion, I'm good to go. I mean, I got it covered. I got enough to get me in. I'm going to squeak in, but who cares? I'll be in there. All of heaven, even a bad corner of heaven's got to be good. I'll dust off my corner and be happy. And that's not what the Bible teaches, right? Church list, we need to beware of false interpreters, preachers who say only smooth things. Y'all know the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were uh, some ancient manuscripts of almost every book in the Bible. I think they don't have Esther, but all of the other books are in the, were found in the Qumran caves. They did archaeological digs there from 1946 to 1957, I believe. And they found all these. In addition to these, they found extra biblical writings, not part of the Bible, that accused the Pharisees of being, listen to this, seekers of smooth things, passing on easy interpretations to the people. Well, they weren't the first ones to write about it. Isaiah wrote about it in a verse that may shock you. Isaiah 30, verse 9, For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, Do not see, and to the prophets, Do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more the Holy One of Israel. God help us. I wish the Bible applied today. (laughs) Don't you? A a, a text written 2,800 years ago. Pretty, Pretty poignant for today. So this passage is rich because it's Jesus interpreting the summary of the Old Testament law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus interprets that summary how? With a parable. He uses a parable to interpret the entire Old Testament law. This is the heart. This is the spirit of all those rules You're trying to make them into some mechanical robotic thing that you can check off your little religion with. That is not what it is. And so he shares. Just imagine, y'all, if we had a commentary on the Old Testament written by Jesus. Would you read it? Well, we just read it. (laughs) Jesus is giving one. I believe the purpose of this passage is not to elevate a Samaritan hero. It's not to beat a scripture lawyer in a public debate. It's to correctly interpret the Bible through the lens and the spirit of God. Not just law, but the spirit of the law. So glorifying God internally in such a way that results in us glorifying God externally. But we got this problem in the text. Luke 7 verse 30, Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. The purpose of God is to glorify Him through repentance and faith so that any victories we have in overcoming temptations or obeying the Word of God only result in God's glory, not our own justification. Look at me, I got up and came to church today. Look at me, I resisted sin. It's praise be to God, all praise to Him. For helping me do it. But that's not what this guy wants. Three minimum questions of Scripture. What's the context? What's the purpose? And lastly, what's the outcome? What is the outcome? What was ultimately accomplished? Uh, Jesus, I'll tell you what He did. He helped the man. He helped us. He helped all the people that were listening properly interpret Scripture. Uh, when Vicki and I were living in Delhi, we'd just gone to India, it was 2010 maybe, and we were we were learning Hindi and I was in the back of a, a rickshaw, you know those little three wheeled yellow and green things. The ones in Delhi are yellow and green. Mumbai is yellow and black. But I, we're in there and uh, actually Vicki wasn't with me. I was in there by myself and I just shared the gospel with this guy in Hindi. I've been practicing the gospel, and so we—he didn't uh, wasn't ready to receive Christ at that time. But we started talking about other things, and he said, "Well, when are you moving from Delhi to Mumbai?" And I said, "Teen r mahela ke which means, which was supposed to mean, after three months, I will move. But instead of saying, "Teen r mahena," K-bod. I said, teen r Mahela kebad," which means after three more women. <laughs> yeah, yeah. his eyes about popped out of his head. You know. I'm almost done here. He's got three more to go. I, I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, in, in, in India, you very rarely do it, but when you're really sorry, you grab your ears and say, Maaf And I was like, Maaf Keejee, Maaf So sorry. I have a wife, oh man. Well, interpretation matters. And Jesus helps the man answer his own question. And how does he do that? How does he help him answer his question? He asks him a question, which points him back to scripture. He points him back to scripture. Friend, I was talking to a brother this week about gifts. And, you know, whether it's a gift in the praise band or a gift of teaching, listen, everyone in here has a gift. And it is that you hold the Bible in your hand. And when you give the Bible, Scripture verses from the Bible that are inspired by God, when you speak those verses into someone else's life, right, you're guaranteed a return on your investment. And you're guaranteed truth because the scripture possesses the spirit of God within it to help people understand it. Even my own opinions about scripture text don't carry the weight and the value of the text I read. Y'all understand that? Now my words may be inspired through the Holy Spirit but not on the plane with the scripture. The scriptures speak and God's always pointing us back to scripture. That's what the Samaritan story is about. So through properly interpreting scripture, Jesus was accomplishing at least three things. First, Jesus helped him interpret the boundaries of his own sin. Luke 10, 28, and he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this, keyword do this, (laughs) and you will live. You think you got all that licked? you think you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, good luck with that. Right, if you, if you want to go that route of keeping the law to get into heaven, you can, you can get there. You just got to be perfect. But And Jesus wasn't saying, you know, you can, you can get to heaven by doing good works. That's not what he's saying in the story. He's saying, you're not good enough. You'll never be good enough, right? Jesus meant it. He wasn't lying. He meant love God and people perfectly and you will live. And I can just see the lawyer's wheel spinning, thinking of times he has not treated people well. And he's like, oh, snap. I'm already out. I can't do that, so it's time for a redirect. i got to have another smaller, you know, way to get in. But God redirected his redirect with a parable of this compassionate Samaritan who modeled perfectly how to love a neighbor, even the neighbors that he didn't like, right? Now, in a totally different parable that will come eight chapters later, A ruler asked Jesus in Luke 18, 18, Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Same question. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What does he do in verse 20? You know the commandments. He directs him back to scripture. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He said, well, I've, I've done all these. I've kept these from my youth, which was probably a lie. But anyway, let's say he did. Jesus heard this. He said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I know I've heard preachers preach about the the small door and the big door. That's, no, it's impossible for a camel to fit through an eye of a needle. That's what he's saying. That's why it said in verse 26, Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. See, they thought wealth back then was a sign of God's favor. And so, if if even the wealthy who God favors can't get into heaven, then nobody can get into heaven. But God. Jesus is saying, "You're right. Nobody can get in. You're sinners. You need grace." And that's what Jesus did for this lawyer. He helped him to see his sin. He didn't make him repent of it. This is kind of a hanging Chad. You know, it's just it, we never we don't have an ending. It's kind of like the ending of Jonah. We don't really know what happened to the guy. Right? He just left us there almost like it's up to you how you want to end this parable, you know? All the alternate endings of the Marvel comics my kids watch, right? Well, there's a there's an alternate ending, which way are you going to go? You're going to justify yourself or let Jesus Christ on the cross justify. Jesus helped interpret the man's sin. Secondly, Jesus helped him interpret the boundaries of his neighborhood, right? He's confronting the real issue in the man's heart, and that's that Pharisees had a very narrow definition of neighbor. <laughs> Jesus is saying, your neighborhood is too small, right? Why do you think he used a Samaritan as the hero in the story, you know? And by the way, Jesus had been rejected himself by Samaritans already en route to this story, the lawyer asked, Who is my neighbor? That's the wrong question, asked the wrong way with the wrong motive. The lawyer wants to limit his own requirements of the law by limiting who his neighbors are. The question should, shouldn't be, Who's my neighbor? It should be, Whose neighbor am I? How can I be a loving, compassionate neighbor? Samaritans, you know, for centuries, they intermingled and intermarried with uh, Assyrians. So they were half-breed Assyrians, and they these idol worshipers who God didn't want them to mingle with. So you got people in the kingdom of God marrying people that are worshiping idols, and pretty soon they raise kids, they, they concede the foundations of their own faith, and they it's like syncretism, which is, you know, it's like a, a half, half lie. You know, a, a half truth is a whole lie. And so it's no wonder they created their own version of the law that Samaritans did. They had their own places of worship. That's why it says in John 4, verse 9, uh, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They hated each other. So the lawyer must have put all Samaritans in the category of non-neighbor. Let me just ask you, church, who's in your non-neighbor category you got somebody in there, I guarantee you. You may not even know it yet until they cut you off in traffic. Then they just became a non-neighbor, all right? Jesus gives three characters in the story and he asked the lawyer to choose A, B, or C. And you notice this lawyer is still so so stubborn. He still won't even say the word Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy. <laughs> Which is True. And Jesus says, listen, let me tell you something. Everyone is your neighbor. Every single person in need of compassion. They're not deserving of it, but they need it. Friend, listen, if you run across the paths of an unrepentant, unforgiving sinner, trust me, they are suffering. Well, preacher, they didn't look like they were suffering when they were smiling, driving drunk, swerving all over the road. That guy that was committing adultery, he sure didn't look like he, was, he looked like he was having a good time with his mistress the other night. Those people on TV uh, turning over cars and rioting, they had smiles on their faces. Those folks over there that are sinfully attracted to their own gender. Those folks over there that are wicked and abused children, pedophiles, conceited, vain, greedy, selfish. And let me tell you something. Trust me, they are suffering. And a good neighbor will pity the suffering. If you're a Christian in here, you know very well what it means to be away from God. You know what it's like to sin and weep over your sin. And if you have that, that's wonderful. That's a gift from God. And if you think for one second that lost people smiling in their sin aren't bound for that private destruction in their own hearts when they lay down at bed on their beds at night you need to go talk to you need to go hang out at a bar and talk to a bartender some of you are so far removed from lost people you don't even know how miserable it is to be lost trust me good neighbors help the suffering. Well, finally, Jesus helped him interpret the boundaries of genuine salvation. Of course, Jesus already knew, and I think the lawyer knew too, that the law was impossible to keep, right? Just because we know we can't justify ourselves with good behavior doesn't mean that we're saved. Understanding the truth about his own sinfulness wasn't enough for this lawyer, it involves the action of seeing Christ's interpretation as authoritative. Is Christ the author of truth in your family, in your heart? If he is, then it's the gracious gift of faith and repentance that saves, not self-justification. Y'all remember the the parable, I love the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, verse 2. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a feast for his son. And I would just kind of summarize that feast with four parts. First, he sends out people to go get the guest, uh, but everybody has an excuse why they can't come to the wedding feast. So he sends out another pack to go to invite guests again. This time, they murder the messengers and shame them publicly. Well, then word gets back to the king And so he sends a third group out. But these are troops and they go to the city where the people shamed his messengers and they kill everyone in that city and they burn the city down. Then there's a fourth part. He sends another pack out and he says, you get everybody. Everybody you find good or bad in the streets, you get them and you bring them to my wedding feast. And so they did and they filled the wedding feast up and everything looked hunky-dory, right? until Matthew 22:11 when the king came in to look at the guest he saw there a man who had no wedding garment and he said to him friend how'd you get in here without a wedding garment and he was speechless then the king said to the attendants bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called but few are chosen it's as if Jesus said listen i know you know the bible But I'm the divine author. And you can't get to heaven. You can't get to the Father by justifying yourself. You can only get to heaven through me. That's the correct interpretation. Church, what do the scriptures say? Do you spend enough time in the word of God to know that? Are you involved in a small group? We've got men in this and women in this church that prepare throughout the week to teach. We've got women's only classes back there. We've got couples classes back there. We've got young adults. And that's where people can fellowship around the word of God. We don't do much fellowship right now. Some of, Sometimes you respond to the message like verbally, but we're not really interacting with the text. It's just me preaching to you, kind of a monologue. But if you had a choice of coming at 9.30 hour or coming at the 10.30 hour to hear me, I'd say go there. I would prefer you go to a small group rather than come in here because that way you can interact with the text. The Bible tells us about the God that we worship. So to not love the Word of God is to not love the God you worship because it tells you everything about Him. You know, what's the old country song? uh, Take me the long way around. You know, I want to see where you grew up. You know, he's dating his girl. He wants to go see her neighborhood. He wants to meet her parents. He wants to know everything there is to know about her. And that's how we should be about the God we worship. I want to know everything about him. And you're going to find that out through the word of God. The Good Samaritan story. It's a good, beautiful parable. But it's really an interpretation of the Old Testament. All right, would you stand? Father, we love your word. It's rich, it's wonderful. It revives our souls, it convicts us of sin, <laughs> and it tells, we who, it tells us who we are in Christ. And who I am in you matters more than what anybody else thinks of me. So God, I pray today, you would help our people to so know your word that they know what it says about their lives. And it doesn't matter if someone else says they're good or bad, what matters is what your word says about me. What matters is how you interpret, Jesus. How do you interpret the law? What is a good neighbor? A good neighbor is someone who has a broad definition of neighbor (laughs) that includes everyone, every hurting person on this planet. God, may we be a church that's that way. Lord, I pray today, if there's someone here who feels like the, the man who's been robbed, laying on the ground, broken, bleeding, bloody, I pray they would understand there is no good Samaritan. (laughs) There's just Jesus Christ that can come in and pick you up. People may feed you, they may give you money, but they can't forgive your sins. Only Jesus can pardon you for eternity. And I pray if you've not been pardoned by by the loving grace of Jesus Christ, you'd call on his name today and be saved. Say, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner and I need you. I pray for others that may just want to join the church and plug in and find a place to serve. There's a lot of neighbors that come through this church and we have an opportunity to serve them in the name of Jesus. and pray that people would join our church and be involved in ministry here. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been sermon audio for Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com.